Now, please stay tuned for Forthright Radio. Welcome to this Forthright Radio for December 9th, 2020. I'm Joy LaClaire. Our guest today on Forthright Radio is Presidential Fellow at Chapman University, Dr. Michael Shermer. He is the co-founder of the Skeptics Society and a founding publisher of Skeptic Magazine. He's been a college professor since 1979, teaching courses such as Skepticism 101. He was a monthly columnist for Scientific American for 18 years. Among Michael Shermer's books are Why People Believe Weird Things, Why Darwin Matters, The Science of Good and Evil, and Giving the Devil His Due, Reflections of a Scientific Humanist. His latest book, Conspiracy, Why the Rational Believe the Irrational, is published by the Johns Hopkins University Press. We spoke with Michael Shermer via Skype on December 5, 2022. The next day, a New York jury found the Trump Organization guilty of 17 felonies, including conspiracy. The day after that, 3,000 officers conducted searches at 130 sites in 11 of Germany's 16 states against the group Reich Citizens, whose members, it said, adhered to a conglomerate of conspiracy theories, including the QAnon cult and the so-called Reich Citizens movement. Michael Shermer has devoted his career to debunking the false and exploring the reasons that they can take over the beliefs and lives of so many, sometimes with tragic results. And a warning to listeners with children. About halfway through this interview, a discussion of a perennial seasonal conspiracy about a certain magical being with the initials SC will take place. If this is problematic for you or your young folk, perhaps they can be elsewhere then. Welcome to Forthright Radio, Michael Shermer. Oh, well, thanks for having me. Michael, conspiracies and conspiracy theories have been around for a long time and are of perennial interest, but particularly now with the recent seditious conspiracy convictions of Oath Keepers founder Stuart Rhodes and co-conspirator Kelly Meggs by a Washington, D.C. jury on November 29, 2022. In fact, their conspiracies seems to have been due to the belief that a multi state conspiracy of election fraud, which was repeatedly purported by former President Trump, not only authorized them to prevent the congressional certification of Joseph Biden, but required them as true patriots to do so. So we are really glad to have you as our guest this morning to dissect, as you do in your latest book, Conspiracy, Why the Rational Believe the Irrational, How These Things Can Happen. Let's begin with clarifying your definitions of just what is a conspiracy, a conspiracy theory, and a conspiracy theorist. Sure. A conspiracy is two or more people or agencies plotting in secret to gain an unfair, illegal, or immoral advantage over a third person or third party. And conspiracy theory is a theory about that happening, whether it's true or not. So conspiracies happen all the time. Seditious conspiracy that the Proud Boys wanted to overturn the U.S. government in the 2020 election is a real conspiracy. The conspiracy theory that they were doing that turned out to be true. Now, it could have been false. That's why they were put on trial. 
And, you know, somebody had to assess whether that conspiracy theory was true or not. And a conspiracy theorist is someone who believes that a conspiracy theory is true. Again, whether or not it, it really actually is true, we have to put that to the test for each conspiracy theory claim. So my argument in the subtitle of the book, Why the Rational Believe the Irrational, is that in many cases, it's not irrational to think that more conspiracy theories are true than actually are true, just in case. It's kind of a signal detection problem. That is, is the conspiracy true or false? If it's, if the conspiracy theory turns out to be true and you acknowledge it is true, that's a hit. That's good. If the conspiracy theory is false and you think it's true, then that's a miss and that's a type one error, false positive. But that's a fairly low-cost error to make than the reverse. That is, the conspiracy theory is true and you think it's false, therefore you've missed out on a real conspiracy. That could be dangerous to you personally or to your group or your political tribe or your religion or whatever. So I'm arguing that we evolved the propensity to assume conspiracies tend to, conspiracy theories tend to be real because, in fact, historically, we know that lots of conspiracies happen. Examples from the book Volkswagen Cheating the Emission Standards in Europe is an example of a corporate conspiracy or price fixing in an industry is a kind of conspiracy. Government agencies operating uh, in secret without, let's say, the FBI or the CIA without congressional approval and often without even the knowledge of the president to overturn elections in foreign countries, to assassinate foreign leaders, which we used to do in the 50s and 60s and 70s and to dose U.S. citizens with psychoactive drugs as part of this MK Ultra program that the CIA was running, or the FBI's COINTELPRO, that is its counterintelligence program that it operated for decades to infiltrate and spy on and try to do harm to civil rights movements and social justice groups like the Black Panthers and the American Indian Movement and feminist groups and so on in the 60s and 70s. Our own government was doing these things against U.S. citizens protected by the U.S. Constitution. So when somebody says, you know what, I don't really trust the government, that's not completely irrational, <laughs> right? Because things, things, bad things do happen. Let's explore, as you do in your book, the evolution that has shaped our brains to be predisposed to conspiracy thinking. Tell us about that. Right. So I do have a section on uh, the evolutionary origins of conspiracy cognition, and I call this constructive conspiracism or constructive paranoia. It pays to be a little paranoid, just be a little skeptical, a little suspect that other people are up to things and up to no good, because we know in every social group, every corporate department, every government agency, there are people talking about other people behind their backs. There are people plotting to get the raise or get the department chair job or head of the department or whatever against other people and conspiring to make them look bad. And things like that happen all the time in the, in the modern world. Well, we know from anthropological studies of hunter-gatherer groups that they, too, have lots of conspiracies people plotting to do things to other people without their knowledge or consent. That's a conspiracy, and that happens all the time. So my argument is that in the long evolutionary history of our upbringing as a species, it pays to be a little paranoid. Uh, that is, make more type 1 errors than type 2 errors, just in case. My type specimen for this that I outlined in my previous book, The Believing Brain, was if you hear a rustle in the grass, is it a dangerous predator or is it just the wind? Well, if you assume the rustle in the grass is a dangerous predator, it turns out it's just the wind, that's an error, that's a type 1 error, false positive, but no harm. But if you make the reverse error, a type 2 error, that is you assume the rustle in the grass is just the wind, it turns out it's a dangerous predator, you're lunch. You've just been given a Darwin Award for taking yourself out of the gene pool early before reproducing. So I'm arguing that natural selection kind of generated a cognition to assume the worst just in case and make the one kind of error 
a false positive type one error more than the other kind of error, type two error, just in case, because you don't want to miss a real threat. And the fact is, the world is a dangerous place, even in the modern world, even though things are relatively safe compared to centuries or millennia before. It's still a dangerous place, and it pays to be cautious. There's so many more ways for things to go wrong than to go right. So it pays to pay attention when you're driving. Don't text when you're driving, right? I mean, these are dangerous things to do, and you know, one slip-up is all it takes to cause severe harm or death. So I think our cognition is wired up to suspect other things going on. And I have sections in the whole sections of the book about his, just historical conspiracies about how many there have been, really, governments, corporations, government agencies. Wars are started by conspiracy theories and, and real conspiracies. You know, Watergate, the assassination of Lincoln, the Iran-Contra. Yeah, I mentioned COINTELPRO and MKUltra, and, and it just goes on and on. Our own government, the U.S. government, with all our checks and balances and transparencies, there's still loads of real conspiracies that are part of our history. And so I'm arguing that when people like the Oath Keepers or Alex Jones or whoever is ranting about the deep state or, you know, there's somebody behind closed doors doing something, that's not completely irrational because enough of those things have happened. So in every case, we need to address the particular claim. The truth matters. Was the 2020 election really rigged or wasn't it? Was it fraudulent or was it legitimate? Well, we now know it was completely legitimate. No evidence for fraud or rigging or anything of the kind. And this includes conclusions drawn by Trump-appointed Republicans who would have the knowledge to know if there was fraud or not, like Attorney General Bill Barr, all the way up at the top. And he said, no fraud. Well, so that should end it for everybody, because we have to trust our institutions like that, that there was no conspiracy afoot. And so that, you know, that, that's why trust in institutions like that matter. Yes, but as you have already stated, trust in government, in particular institutions, is in decline, shall we say, delicately. But one thing that's hard to understand in terms of evolution is what some are experiencing these days, where, for example, belief in QAnon or that are crisis actors rather than mass shooting victims, for example, can utterly destroy family relationships. I heard of a case of a student who survived the Parkland High School mass shooting's father absolutely refusing to believe that the massacre happened and that it was a hoax to such an extent that he and his son are now utterly estranged. And there are enough similar tales to warrant exploring the issue of how can this be? Because just in terms of evolution, would seem that we've been dependent on the primacy of social bonds like family and community. So how can this be so quickly and seemingly easily displaced to an extent that it can even become a political force? Hmm. Well, if somebody really believes a particular claim, in this case, a conspiracy theory claim, I mean, really deeply believes it, it's part of their identity then it's going to be very difficult to talk them out of that with counter evidence or just the claim, that the request or demand for evidence for their claim, because a lot of these are kind of more faith-based, almost like a religious kind of faith in the belief. Like, say, the deep state or QAnon. I mean, there, there's no evidence for any of this. The Pizzagate conspiracy theory being the craziest, you know, that Hillary Clinton and the Democrats are running a secret satanic pedophile ring out of a pizzeria in Washington, D.C. I mean, that was a real thing. Comet Ping Pong Pizzeria was attacked by this guy, Edgar Welch, 
with his AR-15 style rifle. He drove three and a half hours to get there. And he told us on his video, he made a little video while he was driving, explaining, you know, there's a crime going on here and I'm going to, no one's doing anything about it. I'm going in. And uh, when he got there, he was quite surprised to find there was no basement in the in the pizzeria where the pedophile ring is supposedly going on. People are just eating pizza. And that's what you would do in a rational way if you thought there was, really was a crime. So when most people, I mean, some significant two-digit percentage of Republicans said they think there's something to the Pizzagate pizza, uh, conspiracy theory, they can't really believe that. It, it, it's some other kind of belief that I call a proxy conspiracism or tribal conspiracism. That is, it's it's the kind of thing our tribe believes, or it's a stand-in or proxy for something else. We don't like Democrats. We don't trust the Clintons. We don't like Hillary. You know, we're going to own the libtards, just these crazy things that go on on that other political party. Whether or not the Pizzagate thing is really true is not really the important thing there. It's what it stands for, such that if I take a hardcore, say, mega Republican to the pizzeria and show them that there's no pedophile ring, it's not like they're going to, oh, in that case, I'll vote for Hillary. You know, they were never going to vote for Hillary. This is just a stand-in for something else, their distrust of, of the Democrats or whatever. So that's the problem. And if you, in a particular personal case, like you talked about there, I, found, I worked on this Netflix series on brainwashing and uh, QAnon in that there were, we found this woman in Texas who owned her own business, married with kids, attractive woman, smart, educated, entrepreneur, started her own business, successful and so on. During COVID shutdown, she had nothing to do, went down the QAnon rabbit hole and, and to the point where her husband gave her an ultimatum. It's QAnon or me and the kids. She chose QAnon, at least for a while, until she came to her senses. But that's the power of belief. And she said, this is the most important thing I will ever do in my life. That, that is exposing the deep state, supporting Trump, the part of QAnon and the secret knowledge of what's really going on inside the government, stopping this pedophile ring and on and on, all the stuff that's wrapped up in that. Her life otherwise was kind of mundane, taking the kids to school, going to work. Hey, I'm, I, I'm in on this incredible secret. And that's one of the powers of conspiracy theories is they're entertaining, they're engaging, they're morally uplifting. You know, just look at the people on January 6th that stormed the Capitol. I mean, these were not wackadoodle, tin head, foil hat wearing weirdos. I mean, these were normal people. They had careers and jobs. They flew there. They have homes, families, kids, and so on. And what are they doing there? Well, they thought this was their 1776 moment, as one of them said. I opened my book with a guy walking across the rotunda with a Confederate flag. What is this guy thinking? Confederate flag? I mean, the Confederacy has been dead and gone, and they lost the war. What? I mean, this is insane. It's The flag stands for slavery. I mean, are you out of your mind? And what were these people going to do anyway if they hung Mike Pence and killed Nancy Pelosi? Then what? You know, I mean, these people don't even know how to run a government. It's not that they're stupid. They just So they're caught up in a belief, much like a cult. And they really believed it. And so the immediate presentation of counter evidence, when Bill Barr, Trump appointed lifelong Republican attorney general, says, you know, I took the resources of the Department of Justice and we looked into all the fraud claims and there are none. Why is it that that's not enough to turn people's heads back to rationality? And the answer is because the power of belief. It takes a while. It's not impossible. People do come to their senses, but it takes some time. Mark Twain once said something along the lines of, it's easier to fool a person than it is to persuade him that he has been fooled. I think that reflects mm. the emotional investment and having to acknowledge that one was wrong. That's hard under any circumstances. 
at least many of us find it hard. I speak from personal experience. It's interesting to learn. Like what? Let me think. Being put on the spot reminds me of a, a Peanuts cartoon where Lucy said something similar. And they said, well, when were you wrong? And she said, well... I was wrong one time, but what I was wrong about was that I was wrong. I mean, that's ridiculous. But anyway, I can't give you a specific. <laughs> I, I can't give you a specific instance where I was wrong, but I know for a fact I have the visceral memory of having had to acknowledge I was wrong. Oh, I remember one time I bought a product at a mall, and it was the wrong product. So a week later, I went back to the mall. And went to the woman that I was certain I had bought the product from. And I said that in part of the, and she said, no, that wasn't me. And I said, oh, yes, it was. And we went back and forth and back and forth. And it turned out it wasn't that woman. It was someone who looked similar <laughs> enough that I was sure that it was. And the lesson I learned from that was about trials and identifying perpetrators and that sort of thing, because I was so sure about it that I would have sworn under oath that this woman was the perpetrator of, you know, whatever <laughs> it was. So mm -hmm. that was a very profound experience for me. It wasn't that hard to acknowledge once I was convinced. But anyway, just as an example, this is a total aside. Yeah, that's pretty normal, actually. And I, I write about this at length in, the, in my book because it's part of the explanation for why people believe conspiracy theories, which is our, our memories are not high fidelity recordings of what happened that you then, when you recall, play back on the Cartesian theater of your mind and see what really happened. There's no such thing. It's a constantly edited process. And once the memory has been changed, there you can't get the original one back. It's not like hidden in there somewhere and you correct it. You'd have to like reconstruct the original memory from as much information as you have, including the past memories and so on, to adjust for that. And once the new memory is formed, it's really hard to give that up. So here I talk about the research of Elizabeth Loftus, the UC Irvine psychologist who kind of pioneered the problem with false memories. That is to say, from her famous experiments, she would show subjects a short video clip, just like 20 seconds of a person being robbed in a public park. They're just sitting at the park bench and some guy runs up and grabs this woman's purse and runs off. Then you just ask the subjects, you know, what, like, for example, what color was the hat he was wearing? Well, the, the guy wasn't wearing a hat, but, you know, everybody all of a sudden thinks they saw a hat and then described the hat. It was a baseball hat. It was a red hat. It was a, a knit cap, whatever. They, they construct something that didn't actually exist. Or if you show subjects a picture of two cars colliding, you ask them to estimate the speed at which they were traveling when they collided versus estimate the speed that they were traveling when they smashed into each other. The smashed into each other group estimates the speed higher. And her most famous experiment, Lost in a Mall, these are adult subjects in her experiment who were asked to recall different incidences from their life, which the experimenters had gotten from these adult subjects' family members, one of which was being lost in a mall as a child. Now, it, it was confirmed that you know, none of these subjects had been lost in a mall as a child, none of them. But the moment she asked them, just asking, do you, do you tell us about the time you were lost in a mall? And almost all of them said, oh, my God, it was incredibly traumatic. I, I'll never forget it. You know, I was scared. You know, I couldn't find my mommy. And I heard, you know, voice over the voice over the loudspeaker calling my name. And then this man helped me and he was wearing this flannel shirt. And I remember his voice. And then I remember re engaging with my mother. 
They just go on and on in great detail about this incident that never happened. (laughs) So what is going on there? This has massive implications for the criminal justice system, all the way down to police interrogations and interviews of potential perpetrators, suspects. Just asking them the question a certain way can influence their memory of what actually happened, including eyewitnesses, right? So very, very risky to do that. That brings up how one studies conspiracy theories. It reminds me of the part in your book where you talk about the Christopher Bader study at Chapman University and included investigating the propensity to claim belief in an utterly made-up conspiracy theory as part of the survey, such as the North Dakota crash theory. Talk about that. <laughs> right. So here, my colleagues there at Chapman, Chris Bader and his, his colleagues, were just listing a, a bunch of different real conspiracy theories, and they threw in a fake one just to see if people would tick the box that that one's possibly true as well. And they did. A significant percentage did. Since there was no such thing as the Dakota crash, what is it people are doing when they tick the box that that seems to them as a possible true conspiracy theory? And the answer is, well, we don't know (laughs) because, you know, self-report data from social science surveys are, are inherently flawed in that, you know, we can't get inside somebody's mind. What we think is probably happening, this is part of my kind of tribal conspiracism or proxy conspiracism. The specific conspiracy theory, whether it's true or not, is not what's important. It's what it stands for. That is, it's a proxy or it's a stand-in for some other deeper, let's say, fear or suspicion of large government agencies, large corporations, anybody with a lot of power and money. Just look at how quickly suspicions have shifted from, say, Bill Gates to Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos. You know, they're kind of the, the, the they've taken Bill Gates' place as the richest person on the planet, which makes them suspect. We just, again, back to our evolved cognition, we don't really trust people that have a lot of power and money and influence because we know that people that get power, money, and influence are often corrupted. Power corrupts absolute power corrupts absolutely. And that's true. (laughs) It's absolutely true. When Obama was elected, I thought, okay, this is good. He's a smart guy. He's transparent. He seems he just kind of exudes integrity and honesty. You know, let's see if something's going to change. And nothing really changed. You know, I'm going to close Gitmo and I'm going to pull the troops out. We're going to get to nuclear zero. We're going to do all these things. And, you know, he didn't do any of them. And I think part of the reason is when they you get into power, they take it in the back room. They go, OK, here's what's actually going on. You can't do all these things. Oh, OK. <laughs> and it doesn't matter if you're a good person or not. You know, the system is designed in, in a particular way. You can only do so much. And so outsiders naturally would look at that and go, you know what? I just really don't trust whatever the government tells me. 9-11 was done by al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. Yeah, well, you know, you guys lie all the time. I, I just don't believe it. I think it was an inside job by the Bush administration. Or, you know, I think Kennedy was killed by this lone nut, Lee Harvey Oswald. Well, yeah, I think the CIA and, and the FBI and the KGB and the Russians and the Cubans and the mafia, you know, there's those people, they're all up to no good. And it doesn't seem to me that the leader of the free world could be cut down by some lone nut. And I don't trust the government anyway. So Warren Report is a bunch of hooey. I'm going to be suspicious of it. You know, that's that's kind of the cognition there. There's a again, there's a kind of rationality to it. You do a case study in conspiracism around the sovereign citizens conspiracy theory, and you do a psychological overview of 10 components. Share with our listeners some of the psychological overview. First of all, remind our listeners about the sovereign citizens and then the psychology. Mm. 
Yeah, I opened that chapter with a story from when I was in college at Pepperdine University as an undergraduate. My roommate and I went to this tax seminar thing. This is one of these you don't have to pay taxes type groups. And they had a whole series of slides and arguments that the constitutional amendment or the income tax was never properly ratified. Therefore, you don't actually have to pay income tax. And everybody's been duped all these decades. And you can save a ton of money. And here's what to do when they start the IRS comes knocking. <laughs> you should you know, ignore the first letter, ignore the second letter, and then the third letter, you should do this. And then and the fourth letter, send it to us and we'll take care of it here and on and on and on. I remember just sitting there thinking, you know, this all makes sense, but if this was true, wouldn't everybody be doing this? I mean, how is it possible that I'm in on this secret? I'm a nobody. My roommate, he got into it. He didn't pay taxes for, I don't know, like 20 years, and then they caught up with him, and he he didn't go to jail, but he had to pay massive fines and, and so on. And it turns out this is part of this sovereign citizens that, in fact, the United States is not really a legitimate government. It's a corporation, a Delaware corporation. And they actually don't believe in any kind of government other than you yourself are a sovereign citizen. That is, you are your own king, as it were. You're your own sovereign. And it's really a highly individualistic, almost anarcho-capitalist. You know, there, there should be no government at all. Each of us is our own country and your house, your property, your yard to where your fence is or whatever. That is your sovereign domain and no one can come on that land without your permission. So they don't believe in driver's licenses, for example, or license plates on cars because that's a government way of controlling you. And it goes deep down the rabbit hole of suspicion about government agencies and so on. Any rate, so because I am an expert on cults and conspiracies and the kind of psychology of belief, I got called in to testify on behalf of the defense of this one of these sovereign citizen guys who had scammed the IRS, this 1099 tax scam in which he had gotten hundreds of thousands of dollars in refunds from the government, even though he wasn't owed any money. And first of all, I was fascinated by how that works. It's like, wow, incredible detail that people go to to, to con the IRS. But he did for a couple of years until they caught up with him. And now he's on trial to go to jail. And you know, I'll never forget sitting in the courtroom and this guy is being confronted with just massive evidence against him. His wife and children are in the courtroom with him. And the judge is basically saying, you know, if you just confess that you did this and will pay back the money with interest and penalties, you can go home. And he's like, nope, I absolutely believe in that I'm a sovereign citizen. He had this little kind of line that he used to make it sound like if he said the right words in a talismanic way that somehow the judge would let him go free. And, uh, you know, he went to jail. Yeah. So part of my defense so my defense was, was, does he really believe this? And so that I was there to testify. Do people actually believe these sorts of things? And the answer is yes, they absolutely do. I mean, there are con men for sure that are just trying to trick the system and they know it's a con. They know they're lying. But that wasn't my experience with this guy or another one that I, I also participated in. Court case in Hawaii. This one, other one was in Oregon. My experience with these sorts of groups is that most people really, really believe what they say they believe. <clears throat> and otherwise, they wouldn't throw away so much of their lives. And I'm fond of saying no one in the history of the world has ever joined a cult. They join a group that they think is going to be really good. It's going to help society. We're going to man the soup kitchens and help the poor. And I'm going to improve my life. And you know, whatever it is the group is claiming to do, they don't join a cult where you know I'm going to go to Guyana and drink Kool-Aid laced with poison. No one thinks they're going to do that. And in the same way with conspiracy theories, the term itself has become a pejorative. Oh, that's just a crazy conspiracy theory. That's relatively new since the Second World War. It used to be everybody believed conspiracy theories because we all know that some of them are true, right? 
now it's it's kind of become pejorative, but I'm trying to correct that in my book, saying, no, there's, there's a kind of rationality behind it, and most people really believe and they act on that belief. And that starts with, to, to get to the second part of your question, you know, how, how are beliefs formed? Well, first of all, there's patternicity, the tendency to find meaningful patterns in random noise. And we're really good at that. Our brains are wired to find patterns like the stars in the sky are randomly distributed, but they're not random in our minds. They look like constellations. They look like horses and scorpions and and dippers, big and small and, and so on. But that's what randomness looks like. And the human mind did not evolve to understand randomness, which is why my favorite example that I write about in the book is when Steve Jobs introduced the iPod, they then added a random shuffle where your music set, the songs in your music set will play randomly for you. And customers complain, it's not random. Certain songs come up more often than others. Actually, that is randomness. <laughs> Clustering is randomness. And if every song came up the exact same number of times as all, as all other songs, you'd have to program that to make that happen because that's not random. Right. So, so much of conspiracy, so much of life is random. The way things unfold, no one really understands why no one's in control. It's just various social, cultural, political, economic, ideological forces. And we're just kind of floating around on these the sea of these giant forces that we have no control over. It, that's hard to see. It's hard to understand. It's uncomfortable. It's easier to think, well, there's just 12 people in London called the Illuminati or the Bilderbergers or the Rothschilds or the Rockefellers or this group or that powerful person. They're actually pulling the strings, cigarette smoky man behind closed doors. They're running the world. That's not how the world works, but that's how our minds work, right? So then the other idea, agenticity, behind the pattern is an agent, this invisible force making things happen. And so you kind of add all that up with all the other factors I'm talking about here, and you get powerful conspiracism that makes people like march on the Capitol <laughs> or whatever it is they do. What about stochastic terrorism, leaderless terrorism, white supremacy, anti-Semitic, anti-Asian, violent Islamic jihadism? Do these qualify as conspiracies? I mean, it's not like two or three or more people in a room, physical room, but there are like chat rooms and things like that. Yeah, it's an interesting question because we've defined a conspiracy as happening in secret, people doing things in secret. So when Kanye he goes on Alex Jones and rants about the Jews and how he hates them, it's not exactly a secret. <laughs> you know, he's not exactly plotting anything. He's just out there blabbering his mouth. That's not really a conspiracy theory. It would be a conspiracy if people were plotting in secret to do something to a Jewish group. So let's say you have somebody person or a couple people plotting to attack a synagogue, that would be a conspiracy. So these kind of bottom-up, leaderless terrorist cells, in a way, some of them are kind of conspiratorial, so the FBI keeps track of them. What are they planning to do? If they're planning on creating a truck bomb at a fertilizer like Timothy McVeigh did at Oklahoma City, that would be a conspiracy. And the theory that they're doing this is a conspiracy theory, and we want to stop that before it happens. Yeah, that's all part of it. But if it's just this kind of leaderless terrorism, where it's just kind of this I don't know, a cultural shift in attitudes that has been disturbing the last couple of years, a sudden rise, spike in anti-Semitism, for example. That's harder to pin down because it's not one person kind of leading that movement. You know, it's just more of a bottom-up kind of filtering around the Internet and so on. And so that you know, kind of brings up free speech issues and to what extent should we allow this to be online and, or should we censor it on Twitter or, or whatever. A warning to listeners with children. In a couple of minutes, a discussion of a particular seasonal conspiracy about a magical being with the initials SC will take place. If this is problematic for you or your young folk, perhaps they can be elsewhere. 
One of the things I very much appreciate about your book, Conspiracy, Why the Rational Believe the Irrational, Michael Shermer, is that you actually incorporate how to get around and talk to people who have these profoundly sincere beliefs, but you believe they're completely off base. Before we get to those, however, you bring up Carl Sagan's baloney detection kit. Share with our listeners mm. some of his components in this baloney detection kit. Back to conspiracy theories as a signal detection problem. Which ones are true? Which ones are false? Or which ones can we not determine? And you want to get it right. So, okay, so what criteria do you use to determine if a conspiracy theory is true or false? So here I take Carl's Blondie Detection Kit idea and, and, and create my own conspiracy detection kit. <laughs> that is, what kind of questions should we ask or criteria should we apply when you hear a conspiracy theory? You know, I think the deep state's doing this, or I think 9-11 is an inside job. I think Obama wasn't born on U.S. soil. I think JFK was assassinated by the CIA, you know, whatever it is. Okay, so we can ask certain questions. Like, for example, how many people would need to be involved in the conspiracy theory? The more people that have to be involved, the less likely the conspiracy theory is true because we know that people are incompetent. They can't keep their mouth shut. They change their minds. Randomness happens in people's lives and so on. So if it's two or three people, yeah, you know, you can probably pull it off. But look what happened with Watergate. I mean, here are the resources of the FBI and professional G-men, and they couldn't even break into a hotel room, Watergate Hotel, to steal some secrets from the Democratic headquarters because there was like six or seven of them, I think. And, you know, they bumbled and stumbled and couldn't keep their mouth shut afterwards and so on. That's how things actually work when you're dealing with people. And then the second criteria is how many elements of the conspiracy would have to come together in just the right way for it to happen. And the more elements you have, the less likely the conspiracy theory is to be true. Take 9-11 as an inside job. How many people would have to be involved in the planting of explosive devices in the two World Trade Center buildings, two of the most secure buildings in the entire country, which I will remind your listeners that Al-Qaeda did attack in 1993 with a truck bomb in the parking structure underneath one of the World Trade Center towers. So there are police all over, security people all over the place, 50,000 people working there during the day. And somehow all these Bush operatives got in there and broke through the drywall on every floor to plant explosive devices around the support of beams to bring the buildings down with controlled demolition. That happened and no one noticed. And all the people that had to be involved, no one wants to talk, write a tell-all book, go on 60 Minutes and, and explain what really happened. No one was married or, or dating somebody who was involved and now they're broken up and they, they want to come forward as a whistleblower to tell what really happened. All those WikiLeaks, millions of top secret classified documents, not one in there about 9-11 as an inside job. And all the elements that would have to come together because we saw the planes hit, the buildings collapsed at the point of impact where the planes hit on those floors 96 to 102 at an angle that the plotters, the conspiracists would have to know ahead of time where to plant the bombs on those particular floors, where the planes would hit and on and on and on it goes. That's not how the world works. Impossible for that conspiracy theory to be true because all those people, all those elements that would have to come together just at the right place. And then finally, how, how grandiose is the conspiracy theory? The bigger it is, the less likely it is to be true. That very specific targeted things like break into the Watergate hotel room where the Democratic headquarters are and steal their secrets for the upcoming election. That's a very narrow targeted conspiracy. Those kinds of things happen, right? We want to cheat the IRS out of tax money so we can make money. Volkswagen wants to cheat the emission standards so they can make more money. Those are very realistic conspiracies, right? We know people do things like that for gain, for profit, for power. 
But the moment you start shifting up, oh, the COVID-19 vaccine is a way for Bill Gates to control the world population, or George Soros wants to take over the world. This is ridiculous. It's impossible. No one can take over the world. No one can run the world. No one can control world populations and so on. It's just that tells us the theory is unlikely to be true. As I was reading what you had about that in your book, it occurred to me that two things. The problem with the idea that most conspiracies aren't real because it's nearly impossible for the number of people needed to enact them is inversely proportional to the ability to keep it secret. But that's based on the conspiracies that couldn't be kept secret. We know we can't Mm. know about the ones that are successfully kept secret. Mm. And then the other thing, what about the Santa Claus conspiracy? That's an example (laughs) of a conspiracy that seems to be rather effective in terms of keeping a secret from a certain population. (laughs) <laughs> yes, I have a six-year-old who figured out last year that Santa was his parents. <laughs> and he actually said that. You know what? I've been thinking about this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And as I said, I have misgivings about this because what it really means is there's a conspiracy to lie to children, but it's all in good fun, etc. I think it's relatively harmless. Yeah, I don't I don't make a big deal about it. I mean, I'm an atheist. I'm a hardcore skeptic, but I don't make a big deal about that kind of thing. You know, it's relatively harmless and kids figure it out in any case. And I don't think it leads to adult conspiracism about the U.S. government or anything like that. So no, I, I, I wouldn't but, get too fanatical about it. <laughs> right. But it demonstrates the possibility that... <laughs> Anyway, I won't dwell on it, but it did occur to me. Indeed. I was intrigued by the constitution of knowledge. This was a new concept for me. Would you talk about what is the constitution of knowledge and how does that relate to our discussion? Mm, Right. So I talk about Jonathan Rausch's book by that title, The Constitution of Knowledge. He's a a leading free speech advocate and First Amendment scholar and and so forth. And his book is in the the context, I cite other books as well, like Stephen Pinker's Rationality and a few others, in the context of what can we do about conspiracism, conspiracy theories, and any kind of challenge to reliable knowledge. That is, what should I believe about anything? And the fact is, I'm not omniscient, neither you, no one knows for sure how the world works, what's really going on. It's all decisions we make are approximations based on uncertainty. So I need to trust our institutions. And it's not faith-based. It's not argument from authority. It's that we have systems set up for checks and balances of getting things wrong so that we can try as a collective community to get things right. No one of us can know everything. So we depend on others. So examples would be something like an area that I I engage in a lot at Skeptic Magazine is quantum consciousness, right? So you have people trying to explain consciousness. They think, well, it must have something to do with quantum physics because this weird, freaky, two-slit experiment that makes it look like objects are influencing each other at a distance without any known force. Could this be something like ESP or telekinesis or you know, paranormal supernatural power? So what do I know about quantum physics? Nothing. I'm a social scientist, right? But I can call my friends at Caltech and go, okay, what's the deal with this claim about quantum physics here and the new to slit experiment? They, oh, okay. And then they set me straight on it. Now, it's not an argument from authority or faith. It's that I know all these quantum physicist people have been doing this for a century and trying to debunk each other, test each other replicate their experiments, and on and on and on. The system of knowledge that science has developed, peer review, open inquiry, 
replication, blind, double-blind conditions, randomized controlled trials, like with vaccines and these sorts of things. Those are all there for a reason, because individuals by themselves are likely to get it wrong, but communities, all right? So then you take that and apply it to journalism, fact-checking, editors, <laughs> getting multiple sources for quotes or for claims or for observations in the law. It's not enough to have one eyewitness. Do we have any fingerprint evidence? Do we have any physical evidence? Do we have multiple eyewitnesses? How similar are the independent observations by these eyewitnesses to each other? Or are they different? The legal system doesn't want to get it wrong. Blackstone's ratio, better 10 guilty people go free than that one innocent person be convicted. That's kind of the ratio that our criminal justice system uses as a signal detection problem. We don't want to get it wrong and send somebody innocent to prison. So we better have some high standards that we're going to use. And so journalism, science, the court system, criminal justice system are all based on these constitution of knowledge. That is, we have a way of getting at reliable knowledge of what we should believe, not based on faith, not absolute truth with a capital T, just approximations to truth. We could be reasonably confident these claims are probably true or probably false or indeterminate. Given the rapid exchange of information, which is historically unprecedented, it used to take far longer for things to disseminate. I'm speaking, of course, of the internet and the use of computers. You bring up a concept, pluralistic ignorance. Would you talk about that, please? Right. So how is it that ideas can float around in a community, a society, a nation or whatever, in which it seems like everybody believes this completely crazy idea? Let's go back to Pizzagate or QAnon. Polls all the way up until recently have shown that something like half of all Republicans say that they think there could be something to the QAnon and Pizzagate conspiracy theories and so forth. Is it really possible that they believe this or is it that they just think everybody else thinks there's something to it? But in fact, most of them don't believe it. So this is called pluralistic ignorance or the spiral of silence in which an idea can float around in a community. And if no one says anything or if there's no free speech allowed or the free press is not available and no one knows that what everyone else knows. So this is called common knowledge. The only way to have common knowledge among a community of people is if they talk to each other, if they can have some form of communication. And so one of the things that autocratic governments do is they silence people. They prevent them from speaking with each other just in case they discover that there's something untoward about the political regime in power and that they may be plotting to overturn it or whatever. This is why autocrats always try to control the press. We don't want the media poking around and telling people what's really going on because then they'll know. So even if only a few people actually believe the political regime or are loyal to it, if everybody thinks that everybody else thinks that they're going along with it or that it's okay, then they just keep their mouth shut. And that's a problem, as I've just indicated. If you silence people, it's a problem with cancel culture and censoriousness in liberal democracies like our own. If you silence people and keep them, uh, get them to keep their mouth shut because they're afraid of being canceled, not to mention imprisoned if you lived in China or Iran, you know, you see what happens. Now these women are all rising up in Iran. They want their civil rights. They want to be able to dress the way they want to dress, right? And, and the regime is really afraid of this. 
the thing that the Iranian regime has done is control the media. Don't let people talk to each other. And that that's the problem. So con- conspiracy theory can float around for a long time. Just think of the emperor has no clothes, that story, right? Everybody knows that the emperor doesn't have any clothes. They can see with their own eyes. But no one wants to say anything until the little boy finally says, you know, the emperor is butt naked. What? <laughs> and then everybody goes, yeah, of course we knew that. <laughs> yeah, so you have to have that common knowledge. And the uh, the only way to get that is if you have a open communication. That's why I'm a pretty much a free speech, hardcore fundamentalist advocate to just let everybody have their say. Even dangerous, nasty, horrible people like Yi and the anti-Semite or this Nick Fuentes guy that had dinner with Trump uh, last week. Then they go on Alex Jones, you know, just, just, just in case there wasn't any doubt about it. You know, is he really that anti-Semitic? Well, we now know he is because he went on Alex Jones's show and said so. He said nice things about Hitler and so on. So in a way, it's good that these people have access to social media and a platform so we can know what they're thinking. Otherwise, they're hiding. <laughs> they're just kind of doing their thing secretly. And I'd rather know, even all the way up to Trump tweeting. I'd like to know what the president of the United States was thinking at three in the morning. But I know there's his advocate for violence on January 6th was a reason to kick him off Twitter. But I still, just as a general principle, better to let everybody know what everybody's thinking so that we can make rational decisions. That brings up what you call the new conspiracists and that evidence no longer seems to be required. It's truth by a assertion without evidence, and he uses as an example the rhetorical trick of uh, lots of people are saying. Talk about that, please, Michael Shermer. Yes, well, so most conspiracy theories in the past that I've dealt with, they have arguments. They have a series of points that they want to make, even like the flat earthers. I've talked to flat earthers for hours, and they regale me with their uh, reasoning and arguments. And if you go up on the plane and it looks like the earth is curving a little bit, that's because of the windows are curved or the NASA faked these photos. And you know, if you go to the top of the hill, you can see Seattle from L.A. or whatever. They have arguments. The Holocaust deniers, I wrote a whole book about them. They had 50 different arguments that I had to refute. The newer conspiracism is it's just the conspiracy theory without the theory. It's just asserting it's true. And that's really Trump's invention. Just people are saying this. What people? Oh, a lot of people. <laughs> They're saying what? <laughs> you know, rigged, right? Just a one-word conspiracy theory. Rigged, everybody knows what he means, okay? Now, it's possible he's not going to be able to get away with this anymore. I'm kind of hoping for 2024 that enough of the GOP will reject his assertions like this. We don't know for sure here on December 5th that that's going to happen, but I'm optimistic that the Constitution of Knowledge will kick in, even in the GOP, and they'll realize that this is just not working. If nothing else, for Machiavellian reasons, that if we want to win elections, we have to at least pay some homage to the truth, and that that matters. And so it remains to be seen. But yeah, that's a a crazy one. The conspiracy theory without the theory. Wow, that was new. Well, we're seeing that play out in Cochise County, Arizona, where the commissioners refused to certify the election in the county because they felt that the election machines were not reliable and were very open that they had no proof. They didn't seem to think that that was unreasonable not to have proof. You do finish the book with how to rebuild trust, truth, reason, rationality, and empiricism. You've spoken a little bit about that. Share with our listeners some more methods and things to keep in mind. Basically, right, how to have difficult conversations with family members and friends, workmates or whoever comes forth at dinner or at the work lunch or whatever. You know, hey, the 2020 election was rigged or QAnon or Pizzagate. 
or JFK or Obama birtherism, 9-11 truth, whatever it is. What do you say? Well, first of all, you can't just say that's a bunch of baloney and you're crazy to believe it because that is going to shut down the conversation. The wall will go up. They just won't be listening to you anymore. You have to take kind of a strategy to it, which is to say, listen to what they're saying. Pay attention. Try to steel man the other person's argument instead of straw man it. Straw manning somebody's argument is to repeat their argument in a way that it's easy to refute, but they don't actually believe that. State it in a way that they would then say, yes, that's exactly what I believe. And then offer your answer or your explanation or your refutation. And pay attention to what they're saying. Look at them in the eyes. Nod like you're paying attention because you really should be listening. The only way to steal man someone's argument is to actually listen to what they're saying. And before you speak, let them finish, right? And so that they feel like, okay, this person is actually taking me seriously. They're engaging with me in conversation. I will in return do the same for them when they speak. That just makes conversation more rational, more reasonable. You know, keep emotions out of it. No Godwin's law, which is that if conversations go on long enough online, they inevitably end up talking about Hitler and the Nazis. So the moment you say, you know, that's something that the Nazis would have engaged in, or you're like Hitler to believe that, or Trump is like orange Hitler. Really, that's the end of the conversation. People don't think that they believe in orange Hitler or some crazy conspiracy theory. They believe something else. And if you don't understand what that is, you're not going to be able to engage with them. And finally, just remember, it's not going to happen on the spot. They present their case. You make your counter case. No matter how good you think your counter arguments are, no one's going to just say, oh, my God, you're right. I don't know what I was thinking. I was out of my mind. Now I know I'm wrong. You're right. Let's talk about something else. That almost never happens. So you just have to be patient. Just go, okay, I've just planted the seed of doubt. And maybe just consider the following or think about the source of that or just ask lots of questions. Oh, that's interesting. Where'd you hear that? Or how reliable is the source that you got that from? And did somebody fact check that? And most importantly, I always like to ask, what would it take to change your mind? When you ask people that, mostly they go, huh, I don't know. I've never really thought about it that way. And it's like, yeah, well, think about that. And then they may, you know, on their own, quietly, later, you're not around, think about that, and they may change their mind. Michael Schirmer, you've been interviewed by many, many people over the years. I'm sure you get asked the same questions over and over, and I've probably done that myself. Are there any questions that you're never asked and you wish you were asked? Mm, interesting. <laughs> yeah, I guess if I knew that, it would be at the top of my head. You've asked actually a lot of really good questions that not everybody asks. Probably the most important one is, why does this matter? And the answer has to be, in a broader sense, back to your constitutional knowledge idea, the truth matters. I mean, we can see why it matters all the way up until the entire country is based on trust in our elections. And if no one ever trusts any elections, then what's the point of having a democracy? If your answer is, if I win the election, it was fair. If I lose the election, it was rigged, which is what Kerry Lake said in Arizona, which is what basically Trump was saying, then we can't have a democracy. So whether an election was reliable and trustworthy or not matters. The truth matters. Whether there's a pedophile ringing a pizzeria, crazy as that sounds, that matters. My larger project in my career, publishing Skeptic Magazine and writing my other books, is I want to know what's true. I don't want to know what I want to be true. There's lots of things I'd like to be true, but they may not be true. And I want that for you, too, and everybody else. And for a civil society, we have to have some means of getting at reliable knowledge so we know what to believe. Is global warming real or is it not? Do vaccines work or don't they? These are huge questions that affect societies. And there are ways of getting the answers to those questions that I write about in the book and other books and, and so on. This is what scientists do, philosophers do, you know, rationality, reason, empiricism. 
science, the scientific method, these things matter. And, and not just in that area, but journalism, criminal justice, and so on. It matters to us at Forthright Radio as well, and that's why we're so very grateful that you could join us today, Michael Shermer, and for all of the work you've done over the years and with your most recent book, Conspiracy, Why the Rational Believe the Irrational. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, well, you're welcome, and thank you for having me. You have just heard a conversation with Michael Shermer about his book, Conspiracy, Why the Rational Believe the Irrational, published by the Johns Hopkins University Press. As a host, I have tried to be resourceful and respectful. I avoid name-calling and characterizations which are likely to close off dialogue and prevent the coming together of people to work together for the greater good. I assume the best of people and give them the benefit of the doubt until they demonstrate positively that I should not. And I've always cringed when I hear people accuse others of stupidity. It seems like such an insult and and just not very helpful. Recently, however, I've reconsidered whether the concept of stupidity may be not only useful, but crucial to understanding humans. In fact, if considered as a quality or a force, and not simply an insult, say for example like cupidity or religiosity, might it not warrant at least consideration? With that, I offer a piece produced by SproutSchools.com titled Bonhoeffer's Theory of Stupidity. In the darkest chapter of German history, during a time when incited mobs threw stones into the windows of innocent shop owners and women and children were cruelly humiliated in the open, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a young pastor, began to speak publicly against the atrocities that the regime had produced. After years of trying to change people's minds, Dietrich Bonhoeffer came home one evening and his own father had to tell him that two men were waiting in his room to take him away. In prison, Bonhoeffer began to reflect on how his country of poets and thinkers had turned into a collective of cowards, crooks and criminals. Eventually, he concluded that the root of the problem was not malice, but stupidity. In his famous Letters from Prison, Bonhoeffer argued that stupidity is a more dangerous enemy of the good than malice, because while one may protest against evil, it can be exposed and prevented by the use of force. Against stupidity, we are defenseless. Neither protests nor the use of force accomplish anything here. Reasons fall on deaf ears. Facts that contradict a stupid person's prejudgment simply need not be believed, and when they are irrefutable, they are just pushed aside as inconsequential, as incidental. In all this, the stupid person is self-satisfied and, being easily irritated, becomes dangerous by going on the attack. For that reason, greater caution is called for when dealing with a stupid person than with a malicious one. If we want to know how to get the better of stupidity, we must seek to understand its nature. This much is certain. Stupidity is, in essence, not an intellectual defect, but a moral one. There are human beings who are remarkably agile intellectually, yet stupid, and others who are intellectually dull, yet anything but stupid. The impression one gains is not so much that stupidity is a congenital defect, but that, under certain circumstances, people are made stupid, or rather, they allow this to happen to them. 
people who live in solitude manifest this defect less frequently than individuals in groups, and so it would seem that stupidity is perhaps less a psychological than a sociological problem. It becomes apparent that every strong upsurge of power, be it of a political or religious nature, infects a large part of humankind with stupidity, almost as if this is a sociological-psychological law where the power of the one needs the stupidity of the other. The process at work here is not that particular human capacities such as intellect suddenly fail. Instead, it seems that under the overwhelming impact of rising power, humans are deprived of their inner independence and, more or less consciously, give up an autonomous position. The fact that the stupid person is often stubborn must not blind us from the fact that he is not independent. In conversation with him, one virtually feels that one is dealing not at all with him as a person, but with slogans, catchwords and the like that have taken possession of him. He is under a spell, blinded, misused, and is abused in his very being. Having thus become a mindless tool, the stupid person will also be capable of any evil, incapable of seeing that it is evil. Only an act of liberation, not instruction, can overcome stupidity. Here, we must come to terms with the fact that in most cases, a genuine internal liberation becomes possible only when external liberation has preceded it. Until then, we must abandon all attempts to convince the stupid person. Bonhoeffer died due to his involvement in a plot against Adolf Hitler at dawn on the 9th of April 1945 at Flossenburg concentration camp, just two weeks before soldiers from the United States liberated the camp. Action springs not from thought, but from a readiness for responsibility. The ultimate test of a moral society is the kind of world that it leaves to its children, Bonhoeffer once said. The views and opinions expressed on Forthright Radio are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent those of this station's staff, its members, board of directors, or contributors. Forthright Radio is a Beyond the Deep End production hosted and produced by Joy LaClaire. You can hear past Forthright Radio programs by going to our website, forthright.media, where you'll also find links to articles referenced or pertinent to the interviews at forthright.media. Thanks for for listening and for supporting your listener-supported community radio station, KZY XNZ. Till next time, this is Joy LaClaire, signing out for now.